Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply placing a trade shouldn't be complicated it should be smooth as butter the fidelity app makes investing easy with zero commission u.s stock and etf trades no account minimums and fractional shares trading fidelity where nothing comes between you and the trade that's smooth download our app free from the app store or google play Sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from $0.01 cent to $0.03 cents per $1,000 of principal. No account minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Oh, hey. It's your old pop here. Just out mowing the lawn in those shorts your mother wishes I'd throw away. Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. Um, now, in this episode, let's just belly up to the coast. Let's gaze out over a craggy cliff and stare into the glimmering sea. What wonders, what mystery, what possibility, what a shit show we've made it. But is there hope? I don't know. I'm not an oceanologist, but that's okay because other people are. And you're going to get the real-time scoop on whether or not we have missed the boat on saving the sea and what we're doing to make it better. So hang tight because before we set sail, a few things you can do to help keep this podcast afloat. So thank you to the patrons who pledge a buck or more a month to the show. You have kept it running almost a full year now. Can you even? It's almost our anniversary. Um, your questions are great. Your hearts are greater. Uh, if you want to support Ologies via items, ologiesmerch.com has you covered. Literally, the link is in the show notes. Uh, and if you spend all your money on a very tiny baseball jersey for your hamster. I get it. And you can support Ologies with just your words and your thumbs by telling friends and tweeting and gramming and making sure that you're subscribed. So reviews and ratings are free to do. You can just do them. And kind of like a rodent in clothes, I'm just a little creepy. And I read every single review because it's really nice that you leave them. And it makes me remember that there are real human beings in the void listening to this. So this week, I just want to say thank you to Jenny Farn, who says, every day I commute an hour each way to my job. Oh, God bless you. Teaching elementary school art. And this podcast is like a billion mini hot tubs for my overworked brain cells while also giving me cool stuff to talk to the kids about, like shark vomit and why the darn sky is blue, but not on Mars. Also, I've stolen Burbye as my favorite way to exit conversations with hyper six-year-olds and online conversations that have taken a bad turn. Thanks for everything. You're very welcome, Jen. Okay, oceanology. Board. Are you saying oceanography wrong? No. No, my tender bitches. I am not. So oceanology is a thing. It's defined as the branch of technology and economics dealing with human use of the sea. So heck yes, this person is very much an oceanologist. Now, warning. Is this the cheeriest of episodes? Is it full of warm fuzzies? No. No, it's not. But is it important? Yes. Yes, it is. I did my best to balance the gloom with some wonder, and I promise you it is 
important enough to stick with the entire episode. There's so much good information. Also, a special thank you to one of my favorite science and politics and internet heroes, Baratunde Thurston, for hooking me up with this ologist who I nervously emailed the all caps question, how screwed are these oceans? keep listening to hear her answer. So she's based on the East Coast, so I had her on my wish list. And one day in August, I got myself to her native Brooklyn, and I tried to pretend I was cool enough to be there. And we met up at an audio studio at Pioneer Works, which is this beautiful art and cultural center and event space where I, I would love to live as a stowaway if they would never find me out. Now, as a marine biologist and a policy strategist, she does TED Talks. She's worked with the Environmental Protection Agency and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She's an adjunct professor at NYU. She's also an environmental advocate. She travels the world working with politicians and communities to make their relationship to the oceans healthier. I am just like in gentle awe of her. Now, she had just gotten back from an occupational adventure the night before, and I just had the tape rolling as I waited for her arrival in the studio. Way too eager. Didn't want to miss a second. So we talked about her favorite aspects of the ocean, when she fell in love with it, coral reefs, parrotfish, their butts, disgusting whale trivia, even more disgusting plastic trivia, the amount of doomed we are, what fish you shouldn't eat, and whether or not plastic straws really deserve their evil reputation. So it's not all sunny, but she is an expert who will real talk us all into action. So please get ready to listen to the crashing waves of wisdom from oceanologist Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. Do you need a minute? Do you need anything else? I'm good. Or do you just want me to start lobbing questions about Ask oceans me at anything. you? <laughs> I just got back from the oceans. So you just got back <clears throat> from the ocean like five minutes ago, pretty much. Yeah. How much of your work is in the field, in the ocean, and how much is like traveling around making policy? Because mm-hmm. I know that you do both. I don't have an active research program right now. So when I'm in the ocean, I'm just kind of like checking it out or hanging out, mm-hmm. <laughs> keeping in touch with the ecosystems and what's going on down there. So most of my work is more so than policy specifically, just strategy work. How do all these different organizations make their campaigns better, their communications better, policy uh, work more strategic. So Ocean Collective, the um, company I founded, is a consulting group that supports other organizations trying to amp up the impact of their conservation efforts. It's 13 incredible experts from professional surfers, marine biologists, underwater robot makers, filmmakers, uh, policy experts, and we're all just coming together as this team to try to see what we can do to help. And can we talk about your background a little bit about your totally. love of the ocean? <laughs> that was so melodic. I thought yeah. you were going to like ask me questions about my former acapella career or something. <laughs> did you have a former acapella career? I maybe did. Yeah, so I was a jazz singer um, for most of my youth. Really? Mm-hmm. Side note, I'm sorry I sang at you. And also, I asked if she had any music of hers that I could put in here. And she said, no, no jazz clips to share. Sorry about that. So I did try. Okay. All right. Back to the sea. 
When when did you get into oceans and marine biology? When did you decide to take that path? Uh, when I was five. I learned to swim in the Florida Keys on a family vacation. My parents took me down there specifically to teach me to swim. And I went on a glass bottom boat and I saw a coral reef for the first time and it blew my damn mind. <laughs> <laughs> it was so incredible. I mean, just it's like a window to another world, right? You look down and there's just fish and coral and all these colorful things that you could never have imagined. So that for me was the moment that I just wanted to know everything about the ocean. So Ayana went on to get a bachelor's degree from just this little startup college called in the field of environmental science and public policy. She also obtained a PhD from Scripps Institute of Oceanography in Marine Biology, studying coral reef sustainability. Now, during all of that, did she ever think like, maybe I should switch my major to bagpiping? Like, just take a turn into something totally non-oceanic? I decided pretty early on not to take any turns. <laughs> so my PhD is technically in marine biology, but it was done through an interdisciplinary program at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography that was partnering with the economics department to make sure that ocean conservation was integrating all these different things, because it's really a puzzle, right? There's the science and there's the policy, there's the communications, there's the, the law and economics. And so I wanted to make sure that I had at least a reasonable handle on all these different pieces of the puzzle so that I could go out into the world and help to try to solve it in a broader sense. The, there's obviously like a strong need for people to go really deeply into each of those. Like, for example, I'm really glad there are people out there who just study octopuses and like tell us everything they learn <laughs> because they're amazing. But the way my mind works and what I'm passionate about is that bigger picture puzzle and how we can really shift human relationship with the ocean. Because the ocean is obviously like they're, it's doing everything right. It's humans that are causing all these challenges. So that's the piece that I focus on. So here's how I thought I would split up the episode. I mean, everyone's like, how can we make the ocean less fucked? Like, we've really, we've really messed up. That's the question. So I thought we would start with, let's talk about the good things about the ocean. <laughs> sure, there's lots. <laughs> and so I'm going to, I'm going to essentially play like good cop, bad cop. I'm going to ask you all the good <laughs> questions and I'm going to let the patrons ask all the, what are we going to do? Plastic. Oh my God, we're all going to die. So I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you the happy questions about the ocean before we get to oh my God, what are we going to do? I would love to know, did you ever have, well, it sounds like when you were looking in that glass bottom boat that you had kind of an epiphany that there's this whole world under mm -hmm. the sea that you never realized. Have you had any other kind of epiphanies about the ocean or yeah. any other moments that you've had? So when I started my PhD research, I was, I was thinking about fishing and how it can be really wasteful. You catch fish that you don't end up using. And in fact, a recent research project I've been doing for WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, I learned that half of the seafood we catch in the US and the EU is wasted <gasps> somewhere along the supply chain. It's just insane. No. But there's also like the unsustainable aspects of fishing. They're mm -hmm. both problems. Um, so I'm already diving into no, the problems, no. but I swear I'm getting to the good stuff. <laughs> so so fishing can overfishing is a problem and unsustainable fishing. And then what we do with what we catch is a whole separate issue. But I was focused on how can we redesign fishing gear 
to make it more sustainable. And so I worked with fishermen and the fisheries department in Curacao in the Caribbean to redesign their fish traps to let basically the baby fish and the ornamental, like the Nemo-shaped skinny species out of the traps. And it turns out you can let out 80% of the bycatch, the fish you don't mean to catch, without hurting fishermen's incomes because all the valuable fish stay inside. It's basically just inch-wide slot down the side of the trap that lets all the little guys out. And you can't do it with a, like just making it a larger mesh size because then you have like a big, a big hole that mm-hmm. any fish could get out, including the valuable ones. So do Google her paper entitled, quote, Reducing Bycatch in Coral Reef Trap Fisheries, Escape Gaps as a Step Toward Sustainability. For more on this, I did. And then reading the abstract, I did a little way to go squeal about it now there are also diagrams online and the regular fish traps that snag all of those other little fishies can just be retrofitted with side panels that have little narrow slits for little fishies to sneak out and say later days dude i've got more growing to do or you don't even eat my species it's essentially the equivalent of an irish goodbye for a coral reef fish so that was really exciting to me because it was a moment where i saw that you don't actually need super high technology in mm-hmm. all these cases. You just need to think practically about solutions. And if you work with the fishing community and with the government, these things can actually become law. And so in Curacao, that type of trap design is now required and in a few other places as well, in in Barbuda and I think um, they're using it in Kenya. So that was super exciting to me because you can just idea of low tech solutions, I mm-hmm. think is underappreciated. Right. So that was a really eye opening moment and which led to the next one, which was, it's not actually about fish. Wait, it's not about the fish. Did I hear that right? It's not actually about fish. This reminds me of one of my favorite scenes from one of my favorite movies adaptation, which bears the iconic line from a former aquarium enthusiast. I once fell deeply, you know, profoundly in love with tropical fish. Until he grows bored. Then one day I say, fuck fish. I renounce fish. I vow never to set foot in that ocean again. That's how much fuck fish. Now, two things. That clip from Adaptation is so beloved that someone has built a website at fuck.fish that's Only that clip from the movie. You just press play and enjoy. Secondly, that wasn't Ayana's deal at all. When she says, It's not actually about fish. She means that she loves fish so much, she had to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. I had done all this work, like counting fish and surveying fish populations on coral reefs. And then I was like, actually, it's about fishermen. It's about coastal communities. It was about the tourism sector and how people are impacting the ocean. So that's when my research shifted to doing hundreds of these socioeconomic interviews with people across the Caribbean from this mindset that I had to understand people, how people were using the ocean, what problems they saw, what solutions they would support, ask them if they could write the laws to manage the ocean, what would they be? Mm -hmm. And then see what I could learn from all these experts who spent more hours than I ever have um, in and on the ocean. So in order to save species in the ocean, we have to look at the humans on land and like what they're even doing. Yeah, it's human behavior and like what makes us tick and our incentives and motivations and culture. 
That makes so much sense because yeah. the fish are like, don't look at me, dude. Like, <laughs> I'm not the one rooting this. Exactly. Like, I'm just swimming around yeah. trying to like find a snack, make some babies, like not get munched by a shark or whatever. But you're like, hey, humans, let's, let's, yeah. let's put the microscope let's, on you guys for yeah, a minute. Time out. Let's uh. think through this. So oceans, it's not you. It's us. It really, 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 really is us. But anyway, okay, sorry. This portion is the positive portion of the episode. Let's try to stick to the light, fun stuff before the conversation gets a little bleak. Can you give some, like, an anatomy lesson of the ocean, some zones? What's an ocean versus what's a sea? Mm -hmm. Like, just basic, dumb questions. So... The way that we talk about the ocean has changed a lot in the past decade. And now we say the ocean. Mm -hmm. It's really one ocean. It's all connected. And there's these different sort of parts that we name seas and to have different ocean titles. But there's currents that run through and connect everything. So I guess the easy answer is it's just the ocean. Oh. Yeah. So there's the Caribbean uh, Sea and the you know, Mediterranean Sea. And there's the Atlantic Pacific and Indian and all these oceans. But really it's all one big thing. And then as the zones that are more important, when I think about the ocean, I think about sort of the depths mm -hmm. of the ocean, the shallower waters where there's more sunlight have a very different thing going on than super deep parts of the ocean. And so it's a lot of it is about temperature and sunlight that creates these different zones. Okay, quick, quick rundown of ocean zones. We covered this in the ichthyology fish episode, but who doesn't love a refresher course? So let's break it down. Now, epipelagic is at the top. This zone from the surface to about 200 meters or 600 feet down gets some sunshine. So plants grow. The bulk of ocean life hangs out there. Below that are the mesopelagic, bathypelagic, abyssal pelagic, and finally the very bottom, the hadal zones. Now, the average depth of the ocean is about 3,700 meters, and its deepest known point is almost seven miles below the surface in a trench near Guam. I'm just thirsty for stats. Here's another good one. That 97% of the water on Earth is in the ocean. So when we think about fresh water and drinking water, that's a good like, reality check on how important it is to be careful with our water. I'm sure that, like, children ask you this, but the ocean, why is it salty? <laughs> I'm just going to ask. I'm going to ask. The ocean was formed by, like, all this stuff that comes off of land, right? So mm -hmm. all the rocks that are sort of eroding over time into the sea have different things in them that make the ocean salty. And I think over time, things change, right, as evaporation happens and things mm -hmm. like that. So salinity can fluctuate a bit. And that's actually part of what creates these um, large ocean currents is how salinity has an effect on things. Because if you've ever had the chance to go in the ocean after it rains, mm -hmm. you'll realize that um, it's in the Caribbean anyway. So this just happened to me. I, I jumped in the Caribbean Sea after a rainstorm and there's a layer of fresh water on top that's cold, like cool rain. And then the ocean underneath it is salty and warm because salt water is heavier. It's more dense and so it sinks. And colder water is also more dense and it sinks. And so that sets up, can set up either like layers or currents that are, are moved just by like these gradients in salinity and temperature. So imagine dense cold water and dense salt water doing a very fluid kind of sensual tango. Now, I'm still trying to keep this half of the episode light and sunny. So, um, 
Okay, let's see. Questions about the oceans that are not depressing. Um, okay, all right. Was she always into, like, messages in a bottle? Like, the world's oldest one was found early this year in Western Australia, bearing a note from a German naval vessel from 1886. Maybe that's fun. I was super into picking up, like, shells and pieces of sea glass and things like that. I was always enamored by the things that you would find on the beach, but not messages, per se. Right. Do you still have any of your seashells? And Oh, totally. You do? Yeah. I started a shell collection when I was five in Key West, Florida, and I usually uh, find one shell from every beach I go to. Oh. I mean, you can, I don't want to, like, take all the pretty things, but and sometimes I take just, like, a little tiny fleck of something to just put in my... I have a fish bowl full of one tiny thing from each beach I've ever been to. Really? Do you have a name for that fishbowl or is this a fishbowl? No. <laughs> <laughs> have you been to all of the what would have been considered oceans? And I've spent a lot of time in the Caribbean, a little bit of time in the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, but very little time in the Pacific. Just the whole world of Pacific Islands I haven't been to yet. Now, is it true that the Pacific Island, that the Pacific Ocean was named because they thought it was calmer? I think that's right. Is Turns it? out not to be the case. A little backstory. So Portuguese explorer Magellan had hit some shitty conditions through what's now known as the Straits of Magellan near the southern tip of Chile. This was in the 1500s. And rounding the corner into the Pacific Basin, he was like, oh, so much better. It's so calm here. It's so Pacific. Hence the name. But not all of it is calm, however. But in the equatorial region of the sea, that part tends to have kind of a more chill vibe, less wind activity, and it's technically called the doldrums. That is the maritime term for it. So the next time you're having kind of like a ho-hum period of your life, I guess just take comfort that life isn't tossing you around and making you barf into its violent currents. See, this is the optimistic part of the episode. Do you listen to any ocean apps on your phone to chill out? Like ocean sounds? Like, yeah. No, I put earplugs in and just like zone all the way out. <laughs> I wasn't sure if someone who studies the ocean and has dedicated their life to essentially saving the ocean would mm -hmm. be like, I don't, I don't want to hear an app because it's uh, a, just a bad simulation. Or yeah, like I'm a pretty light sleeper. Okay, so um, I like complete silence, and I think, yeah. As someone who is like 95% vegan mm -hmm. I, and who never eats fake meat, it's maybe the same thing, <laughs> right? Like I'm not going to go have like a soy hot dog and I'm not going to listen to like fake ocean sounds. <laughs> do you do a lot of like diving? Did you have to do a lot of diving? I used to, yeah. For my PhD research, I did three or 400 dives. Do you like being underwater? I know some people are like, it's so beautiful. It's like I'm flying. And other people are like, it's so big. It's terrifying. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, some people think that if you don't scuba dive, you can't experience the ocean fully. And I totally disagree with that. I think scuba diving is nice because I can't hold my breath for an hour. Yeah, neither can I. I only learned to dive when I realized that I needed to as a tool for my scientific research. And it's pretty neat. I mean, to be able to, you know, be underwater long enough to really watch um, the behavior of an octopus or a parrotfish or whatever it is, is an amazing opportunity. But I think snorkeling is underrated. 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think more people should get like super into snorkeling because you can see so much just by, you know, diving down and taking a look and being in shallow water. So I hate the thought that people think if you're not scuba diving, then like why bother? Mm -hmm. Because there's so much you can learn about the sea and just enjoy like the spectacular creatures from the surface or from like a little shallow dive down with your mask on. You just got to learn that trick where you blow the water out when you surface, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is that hard to master? No, you can totally do it. Anyone can do it. Okay. Or sometimes when I like don't have enough air left in my lungs when I come up to the surface for whatever reason, I just take the mouthpiece out and just breathe air normally. Yeah, you could do that too. (laughs) There are definitely ways that anyone can figure this out. But as long as we're banding about some facts... Why is the sea such a pretty blue? Well, same reason the sky is. The water absorbs the redder part of the visible spectrum, and then the shorter, bluer wavelengths bounce back at our faces. Most scientists, especially oceanologists, agree that this is very pretty. The one thing it reminds me of is how the color of blue in shallower water changes based on the color of the sand. So if you have really white sand, you have really bright turquoise in the shallow water. And then as the sand gets different colors, you get kind of different colors of blue. So it matters what the bottom is. If you have like a dark rocky bottom or like a volcanic, it's different. And I didn't realize that a lot of white sand is coral sand, right? Yeah, yeah. And a lot of it came out of a parrotfish's butt. Yeah, so parrotfish are my favorite fish. Mm -hmm. They have a beak like a parrot, and they come in all these, like, teal, yellow, green, red, magenta, like, amazing colors. And they have a beak like a parrotfish, and they bite, they scrape algae off the reef, basically. They are the lawnmowers of the reef. (laughs) Uh, A very important job. And um, as they're doing that scraping, they get bits of dead coral or rocks, and then they digest that, and they poop sand. So if you're on a reef with a lot of parrot, (laughs) And this is where it's actually very cool to be diving. And you look out at the landscape of the reef and you see all these fish swimming over it. And a lot of them are parrotfish and they're just like leaving trails of sand in the water (laughs) behind them. And it looks like these like contrails of parrotfish poop as if the sea was the sky and they were airplanes. I had no idea. It's pretty amazing. So some beaches are like 90 something percent like parrotfish poop sand. I mean, it is it is coral and rocks yes. and, and stuff, but it's like, that's how it's been pulverized. You're like, thanks, dudes. Thank you so much. And so there's a push right now to protect these fish mm-hmm. because they're doing such important work of taking the algae off the reef because algae grows so much faster than coral. Mm-hmm. Um, coral only grows a centimeter or so a year, whereas algae, like plants, just go gangbusters. And as we're putting in more nutrients um, are running off into the ocean from different kinds of human pollution, agriculture in particular, um, you're seeing that the algae is being basically being fertilized. So it's growing even faster and there's more of it. So we need these parrotfish, these lawnmowers more than ever. And so there's a bunch of people working on campaigns around the world to protect parrotfish. Protect sand butts. Protect their, the sand poopers. What's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in the ocean? Oh, that's such a good question. Oddly, because we were just talking about the colors of blue, the thing that comes to mind for me is just really, really clear water. And being able to see like a hundred feet. And that's pretty amazing. That just that clarity of being underwater and being and really being able to see. Here we veered off into a whole discussion about the horrors of shrimp, but I'm just gonna stick with this format of a happy first half of the episode. 
more on shrimp in just a few minutes, just a few more wistful, positive things. And then we're going to get to Patreon questions and ocean sadness. I'm just, I'm just trying to stick with this vision. It's hard. Do you have a favorite movie or book set in, set in or about the ocean? Do you have like an escapist movie where you're like, ah, oh, love that ocean? The Life Aquatic is pretty good. Really? Yeah. I've never that seen it. That cracks me up. Especially because it captures like the ridiculousness of life on boats and like, yeah, trying to capture rare creatures and get along in tight living quarters with a bunch of weird scientists. And yeah, that's a good one. And I'm writing a children's book about the ocean. (laughs) What's it about? Oh, it's about a little black girl from Brooklyn who goes to the Caribbean, falls in love with the ocean and decides to try to save it. (laughs) Where on earth did you get that idea? I don't know. It just like came to me (laughs) in a dream. Do you have a title for it yet? Can you say anything? No, okay. not yet. I'm just um, like starting to finish up the fir- very first draft. So <gasps> I don't have an agent or anything for it yet, but um, stay tuned. Oh my God. Heads up, if you are a literary agent listening to this and you're not the one to reach out to Dr. Johnson to get this idea made, I feel bad for you because this book is going to be so good. Also, as she was grabbing something out of her purse at this moment, she told me a very wonderful story. And I think that it was a book I would have loved to have. Mm-hmm. That's so great. I do have a swimsuit in my purse. <laughs> <laughs> Never leave the house without oh, one. Yeah, I have a friend who um, does a lot of theater work. Mm-hmm. I had... I met up with her when I was just coming back from a trip out to Long Island and I was telling her about it and she introduced me to another person as a marine biologist and then I was like yeah but I didn't even like use my snorkel this weekend and like pull it out of my purse and she was like I would never even use that in like a play it's just so over the top that you carry this in your bag and I don't know so sometimes I pull snorkels out of my handbag okay this is where we're gonna take a turn All right, I'm we're, ready. We're going to ask some questions from Patreons. Now, this is, we've talked all about how wonderful the ocean is. It's time to get into maybe the, the darker stuff. <laughs> we're like, this is where like the sad music would be cute. And like, <laughs> you've really fallen in love with a character in a movie. And then you find oh, out gosh. that like, yeah. you know, whatever, they have a horrible disease. So, okay, let's do it. Let's get into the sad stuff via questions from the Ologies Patreon patrons. Let's dive in. But before we take questions from you, our beloved listeners, we're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show. Sponsors? Why sponsors? You know what they do? They help us give money to different charities every week. So if you want to know where Ologies gives our money, you can go to alleyward.com and look for the tab Ologies Gives Back. There's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money, but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by Ologists who work Work in those fields. And this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening and thanks sponsors. KiwiCo. You know I love KiwiCo because making stuff and learning while you do it, the best way. And KiwiCo is great. They deliver seriously fun learning for kids of all ages. They have these hands-on projects and activities and each month kids receive crates that are engaging and that introduce them to things like science and technology or concepts and art. And I love that all the things you need are in there so you're not going to be running out to the store to get pipe cleaners. You're not going to run out of glue or something. And KiwiCo tests these crates with professionals and with kids to make them the best they can be. 
There's so many different projects depending on what your kiddo's interested in, what age or grade level they're at. You can discover the science of magic. You can engineer a domino machine. These make great gifts. I have given these to so many kids. And I also like that there's no commitment, so you can pause or cancel crates anytime. So redefine learning with play. You can explore projects that build confidence and problem-solving skills with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month on any crate line at KiwiCo.com with a promo code ologies. So that's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com promo code ologies. They're going to love it. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day alive and thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Available 24-7, you can talk to a plant expert about your soil type, your landscape design, and they curate thousands of plants. They got climates, they got locations. I am stoked about this because I've wanted a fig tree for so long and I'm like, I don't know where to get the fig tree. I'm not quite sure where to plant it in the yard. And I went to the Fast Growing Trees website and I was like, boom, I'm in zone 10. This fig tree would work well for me. Done. And right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code ologies at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code ologies at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code ologies. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Okay, your questions. So Becca asks, how bad, just point blank, how bad have we fucked up the oceans? Is it salvageable or are we just playing a sad waiting game? So she says it makes me really emotional to think about the disgusting and terrifying things down there who are going to die because people are assholes. And then Mama Awesome said, this is also my question. <laughs> so <laughs> this is like, this is the big question. How mm. bad? Really bad. Yeah. Is the answer. It's really bad. Oh, man. This is like the scene where a corseted heroine coughs blood into a white kerchief. Here we go. I mean, we have done an amazing job of messing up the ocean on a planetary scale. We've completely changed the chemistry of seawater through polluting the air with carbon dioxide. The ocean is absorbing 30% of that. Mm. And so it's acidifying the oceans, which makes it hard for things with shells to grow their shells, makes it hard for fish to smell their homes and navigate and uh, makes them a little bit delusional and not run away from predators. There's Mm. all these different things that we're just learning about that changing the very chemistry of the ocean is doing. So so that's pretty bad. And just the warming of it, all these creatures have been adapted to specific temperature ranges, and now those ranges are changing. And so they're trying to migrate so that they don't, like, melt. Their metabolisms can't necessarily handle all this. So between the acidification and the warming that are associated with climate change and then overfishing 
is a big one. We've taken out about 90% of the big fish in the ocean <gasps> since 1950. What? Right now, 90% of fish populations around the world are either fished to capacity or overfished. So there's 10% that are like not fully exploited. Wow. The other 90% are fully exploited or overexploited. Um, so there's not like a lot of room left um, to take more. And we've also been fishing further from shore into deeper waters using like more and more high tech tools, all the like radar and sonar and helicopters and these things that were developed to fight wars are being used to find the last fish. So we have these like really high tech boats and high tech equipment that we have to use because the fish have become so rare. Um, and so, and then with coastal development, we're destroying the habitats along the coast, whether that's mangroves or, um, wetlands or whatever that is. And those are the nursery habitats for the sea. And those are the natural filtration systems from land to sea. As long as we're in the sad half, let's get some straight talk about shrimp. One of my favorite foods, which I also always assumed was relatively sustainable because they are like the ocean's cockroaches. They're small. They're gross. They're plentiful, right? 99% of shrimp is horrifically unsustainable. Really? <clears throat> yeah, it's either caught with like a net the size of a football field in mm -hmm. industrial fishing that's like dragged along the seafloor, taking up everything. <gasps> and no. A large portion of what's caught, like up to half or so of what's caught, might be thrown back dead and wasted oh. as bycatch. So that's no good. And that, that proportion can actually be even worse. Um, and it, you know, bulldozes the habitat while that's happening as well. Oh, that's terrible. What about farmed fish? Is there such, I mean, so shrimp. Yeah, so farmed shrimp is often farmed by bulldozing mangroves along the coast to make these ponds for them. Um, and the mangroves are the nursery habitat for all the fish on the reef. They filter pollution running off from shore they and they protect places from storms like in the tsunami in indonesia um was it 10 years ago now more yeah um 13. the the places that had intact mangroves fared a lot better because that buffers the waves and so when we bulldoze that ecosystem that's the protection it's the nursery habitat it's all these functions that we're losing um and then we just pollute it with shrimp growing in high density and um, feed them all this stuff and antibiotics because we're growing them in such close quarters that they're all getting sick. Um, so it's it's not really a great way to do it either. And then there's been some exposés in the last few years that a lot of shrimp grown in Southeast Asia mm -hmm. um, is probably peeled by slaves. Oh, my God. So whether you care about, like, the human rights angle or the sustainability angle, I would stay away from shrimp. So ask your fish sellers where the shrimp comes from. Ayana says there are domestic shrimp farms in Florida and Oregon. They're doing a really good job bringing less guilt-laden shrimp to market. But it'll cost a little more for obvious reasons. But if you're not paying, like, $20 a pound for shrimp, it's not good for the planet or for oh people. Oh, my God. And it's all, like laden with these antibiotics and chemicals from the processing so it's not healthy for you either oh my god i ate so the fact yesterday. that it's the most popular seafood in america I like people don't yesterday. know their stuff it's, it's all these like probably, buffets it's probably in my colon still. <laughs> i'm a monster i You're have not no a monster. idea yeah well that's the thing like people don't know about it i thought they were like i you'd figure like oh they're lower maybe on the food chain and they're kind of buggy yeah they're a little bit insect like maybe they're maybe mm -hmm. it's fine yeah oh my God, I had no I idea. I think the challenge is that 
And this is another one of those moments when I realized, uh, had a realization about ocean conservation is that traditions don't necessarily scale. Mm. Like the things that humans could eat and the ways we could fish and use the ocean when there were, you know, a, a one billion people on the planet or less is just mm-hmm. very different from what we can get away with as we're approaching eight. We just can't do things in the same way. And that's a really hard conversation to have with communities that have these strong traditions tied to the sea, mm-hmm. but whose populations are growing and are being impacted by what's happening in other places because the ocean is all connected. So, so yeah, we're at this moment where we just need to rethink our relationship with the ocean. And that doesn't mean we can't still enjoy it. And there is such thing as sustainable seafood, mm-hmm. but we just need to be more careful and change our expectations for what we're, how we're going to be able to use it and um, be ready to, to make some adaptations. Oh, I'm just thinking about cruise ship shrimp buffets. What a horror show. It's, it's a house of horrors. <laughs> Listen, I warned you that this episode would be more on the tragic side. So let's just dive deeper. So between coastal development and overfishing and climate impacts and then just like straight up pollution, yeah. <laughs> everybody knows at this point about plastic pollution in the ocean, but there's also a lot of pollution that comes from the runoff of all the pesticides and herbicides that we put on to our farms when it rains, runs into rivers, and that runs into the sea. So even if you're inland, there's still that connection. So, so yeah, we've done a really good job of thoroughly screwing up the ocean, but there are a lot of reasons to not give up because I'm also extremely good at sitting on my couch, eating popcorn and watching trashy television. And so I would like hone that craft if I thought that the ocean were just not worth it anymore. And so instead, I'm like seasons behind on everything and really focused on this because I feel like we have an incredible opportunity to really make a difference. We've seen so many examples of things that work that when you change the way that fishing happens, when you establish a protected area, when you work with hotels and companies to change the way they manage their waste, when you work with farmers to explain how things connect to the sea and they change their practices, there are just more and more and more stories about things that are working. And so it's about replicating what's working and scaling that that work. So definitely don't give up. Okay. But I w- obviously I'm not sugarcoating it either. Like mm-hmm. it is bad. Um, the ocean is different than it was when we were born and we're not even that old. Wow. Um, so the ocean that I saw in 1985 when I first saw the ocean is different now and perhaps permanently so. The way that I deal with this sort of like existential crisis of like, oh my God, the planet is dying. What do I do? Should I just like drink a bottle of whiskey and forget about it? (laughs) The answer is like, no, I can't be hung over because there's all this great work to do. And it's a matter, it's not a matter of like zero, like a totally dead ocean or like a hundred percent healthy ocean. It's where we're going to fall in between because with 8 billion people on the planet, we can't go back to like a perfectly pristine ocean, but we can aim for 80% or 60% or even 30% is much better than zero. Mm And our, our livelihoods, our food security, our health hangs in the balance. So depending on the day, I'm either fighting for like 20% or 80%, (laughs) but like any of it is better than zero. And now, okay, ocean cleanup. Uh, Carrie Stewart and Rob Smith both had the same question. Um, does supporting a group like For Ocean really help clean up the ocean of plastics? Like, are any of those methods of getting 
things out of the ocean. Are those really going to work? Are those like, do we want to believe that they work? We definitely want to believe that they work. Oh my gosh, do we want to believe that they work? And a lot of people have been sort of fooled into thinking that that problem is solved. Like there's this technology that will just like clean it up and we don't have to worry about it anymore. But that technology is far from being proven, very far from being proven. And if we think about the challenges of cleaning up something as big as the ocean, (laughs) which is, you know, 72% of the planet, that's a tall order. Mm -hmm. And not to say we shouldn't try, but I think the question is, where are we going to devote our resources and energy? And so one, when I think about it, I think about, well, how do we stop the flow of plastic into the ocean? This is a good point. And gird your hearts for another horrifying statistic. Because the cleanups don't matter if we're still dumping one ton of plastic into the ocean every four seconds. What? I worked with the group Lonely Whale. I've been working with them on making these calculations. How much are we actually putting in? Where is it coming from? What types of sources is it? And that's the number that we came up with. One ton of plastic is entering the ocean every four seconds globally. And so when we think about that, I spend my time thinking about how to prevent every second of plastic entering the ocean. So quick history. How long has plastic been around? So technically since 1856, but it wasn't until World War II that mass production started. Now around 1954, DuPont and Dow Chemical invented and licensed expanded polystyrene, which is used in packaging and bottles, although there's a bunch of different types of plastic. So yeah, in the 1960s, we saw an explosion of plastics in commercial uses. Now, 1967's classic film, The Graduate, was sadly on point about one piece of career advice. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir. Plastics. So what can we do? Not, and I think beach cleanups are great. They raise awareness. They build community. We obviously should pick up what we can. I think the focus should be more on coastal cleanups as opposed to way out in the ocean. Because once you get to way out in the ocean, you're dealing with a lot of like interesting physics and oceanography challenges, but also the fact that if you're you're just scooping everything up, you're scooping up the marine life as Mm -hmm. well. So there's a lot of opportunity to just clean up along the coast, but then to really force corporations and governments to do their part. This shouldn't be about you and me going up and picking up straws and bottles from the coast. It should be about us refusing to use them, but it should, should really be like corporations changing the way they're manufacturing things and governments improving their, you know, recycling capacity and demanding that companies produce only recyclable things. So much of the plastic that's produced is not even recyclable. Oh, I didn't know that. Just checked out a Nat Geo article from last year that said 91% of the world's plastic isn't recycled. And I audibly whimpered in a public coffee shop. So you know how plastics usually have a triangle with a number in the middle on the bottom? Not all of those will be reincarnated into other objects. One and two usually can, four and five are maybe, and three, six, and seven are usually not accepted by recycling programs. So read up on the hot goss between the numbers, because some types of plastics even contain fun chemicals like BPAs that have shown to contribute to infertility. 
Did I warn you that this podcast would be a bummer? Because I know I did. Welcome to hell. Now, luckily, people like Ayana are out there working on better public policy. She's like the Amal Clooney of the sea. Also, some folks in the other room while we were recording this were having kind of a spirited discussion. So if you hear their chatter, just pretend we're having a fun time at a cocktail party chatting about preventing environmental doom. There's a lot of room for improvement there, but we're seeing, uh, I think we're actually seeing some really positive signs in that direction. The UN has been organizing something called the Clean Seas Initiative, and they have gotten, I think, three dozen countries to sign on and make commitments to reducing ocean plastic pollution. So we're starting to see commitments at not just at the individual level, I will, you know, give up bags and straws and carry my own water bottle. And these are all great things to do. I do them. But what really inspires me is Kenya and Rwanda banning plastic bags, Mm -hmm. Costa Rica pledging to go completely without single use plastics by 2020. Um, The EU is starting to make some big policies. And so all around the world, we're starting to see these shifts. I think Chile just banned plastic bags as well. So yeah, there's a lot of good stuff happening there. We're We're starting to see a lot of momentum there. And I think that's great because it's also an opening to talk about ocean problems more generally. Mm -hmm. Great. Now that you care about, you know, a straw in a turtle's nose, like, let's talk about let's talk about what else is happening to those turtles. Let's talk about overfishing and poaching and the state of the habitats that they are trying to live in. Right. So what you're saying is the tide is changing. <laughs> the tide is turning. Sorry. Um, I, of course, I got this question, um, and I'll just touch on it just in case there's anything that we, you didn't just answer in that. But um, Maria Kumro, Jen Borlick, and Sarah Millington all wanted to know how much positive impact on marine plastic debris will the plastic straw ban really have? Mm-hmm. They all kind of want to know, like, what's your thought on, like, plastic straws are the problem? Yeah. Is it like, they are, but essentially... The plastic straws are a really big problem because they are, cannot be recycled. They're, like, too small for municipal recycling to deal with. Okay. So that's one of the reasons they're a particular problem. There's obviously a lot of other problems. We're using a million plastic bottles every minute, Ooh. so that's not good. Just personal shout out to companies like LK and Hosley Taylor for making these public water bottle filling stations so we can stop buying plastic bottles when we're parched and in public. It's They're so great. Look for the little bottle silhouette near a water fountain. You can roll up with your thermos and just fill her up, boss, for zero dollars. It's great. And they have these little counters that tick off the number of plastic bottles they've prevented from being on Earth. And so when your bottle's done filling, the number goes up one more. It's very fulfilling. And bags, I think we the average plastic bag is used for 12 minutes before it's thrown out. So there's a lot of other issues. But straws are problematic because they can't be recycled. And they also are one of the top items that you find in beach cleanups. Are they? So okay. they're like, they're, they're small, right? So they kind of like escape garbage cans and like, they just they end up on the beach a lot Mm -hmm. and so that means they end up in the ocean a lot so yeah they're one of the top five items that the ocean conservancy has been consistently finding when they do these uh, organize these global um, international ocean cleanups and they collect data on you know what are what is really out there like what are the top 10 and plastic Mm -hmm. uh, straws are always in the top five and number one Yeah. Can you guess what number one is? Oh, no. I would say bottles, but I don't know. It's cigarette butts. What? 
the number one beach pollution, like by the number of items, not by yeah. like the, the mass of them, is cigarette butts. Oh, and the, it's those plastic filters at the end. <gasps> and of course, that's like all the chemicals from the cigarette is like a lot of them are trapped in that filter. So no. they're pretty toxic too. So don't just throw your cigarette butts in the sand. <laughs> no. Oh my God. They're like plastic cancer tampons. <laughs> that's the worst. It's pretty bad. I mean, it is funny that culturally it's like, oh, I'd never drop a wrapper on the ground, but people are like, I just flick a cigarette butt. Like, yeah. where does it, yeah, where do they cool. think that goes? Like, raccoons are eating them? No, not nobody cool. wants those. That's really illuminating. I had no idea. And I wasn't sure if, like, plastic straws were, like, being a scapegoat for, yeah. or if they were, but that's good to I know. I mean, I think they also are not necessarily a scapegoat, but symbolic, right? Mm-hmm. Because for most people, they're completely unnecessary. Mm. Like reapply your lipstick yeah. if that's your issue or like whatever it is. I think there's a really important exception that needs to be made for the disability community. Mm-hmm. There are people who need to use straws and that's fine because that would be a scapegoat. If we're saying like there are a few people who really need them uh, because that's how they drink, that's mm-hmm. fine. But I think so there's no need. Absolutely. We should avoid making these blanket statements that that are problematic for for folks who need them but most of us really 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 don't, don't need, need them. them um and the way that that drinks are made they just like come with straws in yeah. them so i think even just the flip from straws um automatically to straws only on request would make a really big difference what about those lids that are like don't worry you don't need a straw but they're more plastic i think that's ridiculous okay that's what i thought <laughs> I mean, this is probably like an uncouth opinion, but I thought that Starbucks like really punted on that one. <laughs> I mean, it's already like, a, you know, adult sippy cups is like their whole thing. And I, I just just like doubled down on it. I, know. I saw that. I saw someone drinking out of that. And I was like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's no straw. And then I read something later that day that was like, use plastic. I was like, God damn it. Silly. Although the alternative, which I do when I have like an urgent need for an iced coffee mm-hmm. and they try... I, Always order it in a paper cup. Oh, without a lid. Good to know. So Never that's that. my hack for that. Because obviously, like iced coffee is delicious, and I sometimes don't get enough sleep. So um, I get it. I just, you know, there are ways to work around this. Mm-hmm. Or I think a really big other opportunity for that anyone can do, and that it shouldn't be just about individual responsibility, but like restaurants and cafes should do is ask you, do you want it for here or to go? Because if you go into a cafe and you look around, everyone's using like to-go containers and they're all sitting there and it drives me bonkers. I know. And I think it's like no one wants to wash the dishes or they haven't actually built these cafes with enough dishwashers or whatever. So I think there's a shift that needs to happen there. And just ask me, do you want it for here or to go? Yeah. I drank a cup of tea in a cafe before this that was given to me in a paper cup no lid, thank God. But still, and I got it, and I, I had it in my hand, and I was like, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, I don't need this. I'm <laughs> such a jerk. Okay, question about the garbage patch. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the garbage patch. Um, Blair Nelson and Eva both uh, ask, like, what's going on with the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which honestly sounds like it sounds like not even a real thing. I mean, I know it's very real, but it's mm-hmm. just, like, so fancifully, horribly named. And then what should we do about it? And... Like, what are we and what's happening with like microbeads and tiny, tiny Mm -hmm. particulate plastic? Mm -hmm. So for the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, that's a thing. Mm -hmm. There's actually. um, So the reason that it exists is because of ocean currents that um, swirl around in these gyres and then collect things. 
So a gyre is like a spiral or a whirl. It's kind of like a cowlick of the ocean. And so since there's plastic that gets concentrated into this patch, uh, most of the plastic in that patch is really small. So mm -hmm. it's like the size of your pinky fingernail. It's not like a bunch of bottles floating on the surface. It's not actually like an island you could walk across. And so I think the initial reporting on that was great because it got people to care about it, but it also created sort of a false image in our heads of what it looks like. It's mm -hmm. just, it's a higher concentration of plastic in that part of the ocean. So it's actually like a little bit, it's, it's, which makes it a lot harder to clean up, right? Cause right. it's, it is quite diffuse. I watched some videos and the plastics hauled from the oceans range from like mountains of soggy fishing nets to tiny, tiny flecks of broken down bottles and toys. And the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is estimated to be between the size of Texas to the size of Russia, somewhere between there. Now, it may be the largest on the planet, but it's not alone. It has other garbage patch friends. And there's one of these garbage patches in in every ocean gyre. So there are five major ocean gyres and there's a garbage concentration or garbage patch in every single one. Oh, no. So what we can do about it is lobby for changes in corporate and government practices regarding plastic um, to prevent this uh, one ton of plastic entering the ocean every four seconds. We can obviously change our individual behavior and we can support conservation groups that are doing really practical things to turn that around. So um, one of the, there, there's a few groups that I think are really exciting. There's um, Lonely Whale is doing really good work on the corporate level, gathering together partners for that to push there and, and working with the UN. The Ocean Conservancy started something called the Trash Free Seas Alliance that's also working with corporations and governments to to shift policy and the status quo. Surfrider, which mm -hmm. is an organization um, that's focused on the surfing community and activating people who love the ocean to help protect it. They have been really active in um, campaigns against single-use plastic. And I think that's the term that we need to think about is like single-use plastic. There are certainly some like medical uses of plastic that I'm happy to have for, you know, um, for safety and sanitary reasons. But I think just like the disposability of everything all yeah. the time in our daily lives is problematic and actually creates this mindset of like, oh, I'll just get a new one or I'll just whatever. And it's like feeding this just really unsustainable, consumerist, disposable mindset mm -hmm. that I think is not super great. Not good. There's a lot of things we can do about it. So support groups like that. And there's also a lot of, there's like cool low-tech solutions that are out there. And my favorite one is called Mr. Trash Wheel, which is basically like, you know those old-fashioned, like, steamboats that had, like, a big water wheel at the back? Uh -huh. It's basically, like, this huge water wheel, and then behind it is a dumpster. Oh. So I just checked out a video of Mr. Trash Wheel, and it's the happiest I've been during the entire making of this episode. I was not prepared for how cute this garbage gobbling machine is. So picture a water wheel on one side, and then a domed canopy that looks kind of like a covered wagon, but with one end, a big mouth fed by a conveyor belt of trash. Atop this whole structure, two huge googly eyes, giving this giant trash apparatus the look of this hungry, floating, 
earth-saving cartoon. I want to hug it, even though it's the size of like a motorhome and also probably very smelly and would eat me and throw me in a dumpster, but with good intentions. And so you put this water wheel in a harbor or a river, and as pollution runs down the river, it gets sort of funneled towards this water wheel. And then as this wheel spins, it picks up bottles or tires or whatever's floating down and just like deposits it as it turns in the dumpster behind it. And then you take away the dumpster and like dispose of it properly in the dump. And so you're preventing all this stuff from ever even getting to the sea. So Mm -hmm. this is in Baltimore. There's Mr. Trash Wheel and then there's Professor Trash Wheel. So there's two. And they did like a big social media review where they like revealed that Professor Trashville was a woman. (laughs) Which I was obviously amused by. (laughs) So stuff like that, I think, is really promising. And so instead of thinking about like cleaning up the middle of the ocean, there's so much that we can be doing closer to land and should be doing. It's amazing that you're like, oh, wait, we didn't have something to prevent that from going out there this whole time? Yeah, exactly. What are we doing? Yeah. Oh my God. Iolante wants to know, how can we save the Great Barrier Reef? We could stop climate change. That would be like the thing. Cool. Yeah. What about sunscreens? I hear that's a factor. It is a factor. And Hawaii just banned these sunscreens with these chemicals that are harmful to corals. I can't remember the name of like oxy. Oxybenzone. Oxybenzone. They also screw up your hormones. Yeah. That's fun. (laughs) So it's worth it to do a little more reading on chemicals like oxybenzone, which can lower testosterone in adolescent boys. It can leach into mother's breast milk and cause endocrine disruption among humans. So even if you have a personal beef against coral reefs and you don't care if they die, you might want to switch to mineral sunscreens just for the sake of your own gonads. Basically, we should only be using mineral sunscreens, like with zinc and like uh, that make you look weird and pasty. Like that's the one you want. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or just what what I do is like I just wear long sleeves or sit in the shade when I've had too much sun. Mm -hmm. Also super effective. The mineral um, ones are great for summer goths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a real great way to do that. 100%. Yeah, so I think it's great that uh, Hawaii is leading the way on that. Um, so that makes a difference. I mean, fishermen that I've talked to in the Caribbean said when then cruise ships come in and all the tourists like slather on all this sunscreen and then jump in the ocean to go snorkeling, it looks like this oil slick of like shiny iridescent stuff on the surface. And they're like, obviously this is bad for the fish and the corals. So it's a problem in places where there are high densities of people more so, but there's tons of great options of mineral sunscreen. So just look for things with zinc in them. Okay. And my question here, what's going to bone the ocean more? Is it going to be the acidification, the plastics, or the rising temperatures? Um, I can kind of cheat and just say climate change because the acidification and the warm rising temperatures are both... Um, effects of climate change as a sea level rise, which is doing some crazy stuff to coastal ecosystems too. So mm-hmm. not to mention to our, our homes and our infrastructure. So yeah, I think climate change is the number one. Plastic is pretty insidious and the rate at which we're just like taking things out of the ocean through mm-hmm. overfishing is pretty wild, but the ocean can is incredibly resilient. So it will be fine without us. Like, if we really screw this up and kill the ocean, which means we're killing the planet, which means we're killing ourselves, when humans go extinct, the ocean will be fine. It'll be different, but it'll be fine. So um, it's really, like, our survival that we should be worried about. Right. And and so 
for those who need a more self-centered motivation <laughs> for ocean conservation, there you go. Save the ocean to save yourself. Paula Herrera asked, were the boys in my middle school right how much of the ocean is actually whale sperm? I don't think that's quantifiable, correct? Uh, that is not a number that I have heard. Okay. Um, and then, Although think- they do have enormous penises. <gasps> hey, mom, dad, fast forward like 30 seconds, okay? Okay, so writing this in a coffee shop, I made sure to angle my screen before hesitantly typing into Google, how big are whale dicks? And in huge font, the answer popped up, 12 inches. I was like, oh, okay. Then I realized that was the diameter. The length is 10 feet. Also, whales can pee up to 250 gallons a day, sometimes floating on their backs and just becoming tinkling geysers. Ayana delightfully topped that fact with this. But barnacles, barnacles have the largest penis to body size ratio of anything because they have to have sex without moving. They're like stuck on rocks (laughs) and they literally have to like penis comes out of one barnacle, like finds another barnacle, like knocks on the door. They like open their shell, like let this penis in. Can you even imagine? Oh my God. You're in like a long distance relationship. Yeah. The only way to get in touch is like, send your dick over. It's like a dickogram. Hi. Basically. 50,000 babies. Um, uh, Krista Avampato, Jenny Kaloda, and uh, Anne Sophie Karen all pretty much asked about your job. Um, like, where would someone begin becoming a marine biologist mm-hmm. um, or someone who works on like science policy? Like, how do people become you? I'm like, don't advise becoming me exactly, but I would love. <laughs> for more people to join Team Ocean because there's really exciting work to do and it's a wonderful community of folks. I don't know if that my personal story is super instructive. I think there's a lot of different paths to get to this type of work. I took the science path towards policy because at the time it seemed like there were a lot of lawyers going towards ocean policy, but not a lot of scientists sort of meeting them halfway. Mm -hmm. And so that's the direction I took. But um, you can go straight into law and policy. You can do communications. We obviously have a lot we can do to better tell the story and engage people. There's a lot of really amazing art happening around community engagement for oceans. And this organization that I mentioned, TBA 21 and their academy is supporting a lot of really amazing ocean art. Places like Pioneer Works, where we are now, that are integrating the science studio with the arts exhibitions here are really important to, to changing the cultural narrative. So I guess I would say it depends. Like, what are you passionate about? What are you good at? Mm-hmm. If you want to, and then how can you do that in service of the ocean? So whether that's art or science or law or communications, writing, I think there is an opportunity to to rewrite our relationship with the ocean. I've done more, I'm doing more and more writing now because I feel like there's just not enough literature out there about our changing planet and how we relate to it. Not in like a depressing way, but just in a like, what does it mean to be a human in this day and age? That was probably not super helpful, but there's lots of different like fellowships and internships and positions in all these organizations. So an organization like the Ocean Conservancy needs you know, it's it's a big NGO or Oceana or a World Wildlife Fund or Wildlife Conservation Society. They all have the Nature Conservancy, Conservation International. They have global ocean conservation efforts. And to run an organization like that, you need you need secretaries and janitors, too, who are mm-hmm. committed to, like, keeping that going. You need accountants. You need lawyers. You need 
policy nerds, you need science experts, you need people running social media. So it's it's all those things. You need caterers. Mm-hmm. I mean, and boy, do we need better sustainability in in events. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's a million ways to get involved and to do it either full time or to start like an adjacent business or join something that's related to it. So hop on in. Yeah, like that's great. Find what you're good at and then approach it that way. Yeah. That instead of trying to shoehorn yourself into Cuz not everyone wants to be a marine biologist and some people think scuba diving is scary and that doesn't mean you can't be helpful. Mm-hmm. I would be the worst lawyer. Like when you <laughs> I see pictures of you like doing policy and you're in a boardroom with like a bunch of people in suits and you all have folders and that to me is scarier than like being under the ocean in a vast That's like so nothingness. Like that to me I'm like oh god there's so many terms that you have to know like there the fact that you have an aptitude for it. languages I'm like, to be learned. Oh. So yeah the, you know and, and I think you touched on this before but in a nutshell Mariner Cosplay Neil Williams Sarah Meredith um, smear tactics all kind of want to know like in a nutshell what can the average person do in their life to just help I mean I know mm-hmm. limiting single use plastic um, mm-hmm. do not dump a bunch of garbage into the ocean that's a great place to start <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> litter I've got a list actually on the Ocean Collective website mm-hmm. there's a resources page where you can learn more about all this stuff there's a page on protected areas and on fishing and on climate and on pollution and there's lots of articles and facts you can read about all of that but there's also a list of like 10 things you can do so this full list is up at oceancollective.co and there's no e on collective but number one is to vote. Oh. And because because politicians are off the hook on a lot of environmental stuff because their constituents aren't making demands of them. Um, and believe me, I know there's a lot of other issues people are dealing with in the political sphere right now. But if we don't hold our politicians accountable for the state of the environment, because they have a lot of ability to, to change the rules of the game and give the earth a better fighting chance. So I think I think that's the number one thing is to be politically engaged. When there are bills that come up on, you know, funding ocean cleanups or research into ocean acidification or funding protection of marine parks, like we should be chiming in and saying, yes, this matters. Yes, we want to end overfishing. There's a possibility that this there's a bill that could change the way that fishing is managed. And people need to be weighing in and saying excuse me, you want to roll this back and allow people to overfish by law? That doesn't seem to make much sense to me. And so it seems counterintuitive, but political engagement is the number one. And then obviously we can all you know, be more careful about choosing sustainable seafood and bringing it up at the establishments that we care about and asking for it, reducing our single-use plastic, reducing our carbon footprint because climate change is having such a big impact on the ocean. We can choose resorts when we go on vacation that are more ocean friendly or sustainable in general. There's no reason to leave your values at home when you go on vacation. This goes against literally everything Las Vegas was built on, which is why it's great advice. Yeah. And so the list kind of goes on from there. I think I maybe got five or six. (laughs) So I cross-checked this with the take action section of the Ocean Collective site and the remaining items were get informed. You're listening to this. Great job. Choose other sustainable foods and farms, not just seafood. Uh, You can clean up the coast. You can donate to an ocean cause. And she has some recommendations on the resources page and to help spread the word. So tell people about this episode if you feel like it. Okay. Now, what 
do you do if you're crying into a bowl of fish chowder right now? And when it comes to sustainable seafood, is that kind of something that is said to make us feel better or is there really such No, thing? that's real. And I think with aquaculture, we're st- that kind of industry kind of got a rough start, but they are figuring out sustainable practices. There's a lot of the most exciting work in that space for me is around integrated farming or vertical ocean farming or it's called 3D ocean farming. And it's about growing oysters and mussels and clams and all these different kinds of algae together in a simplified ecosystem that kind of creates habitat for other things to swim through as well. Algae is super, super healthy and underrated. Sea vegetables, as they're now sometimes like Ooh. called in hip spots. So eat more algae, farm shellfish. You can eat with impunity as much as you want. Those oysters, mussels, clams, because they actually just filter the water. So we don't have to catch wild fish to feed the farmed fish, which is a problem with some other species. Oh. Although they're also innovating feeds from like plant proteins and insect proteins to feed fish now. So that industry is coming along well. So I, what I personally eat mm-hmm. is those things. I eat seaweed, I eat farmed shellfish, and I eat sardines and anchovies. Oh. Because those tiny fish, they reproduce quickly, there's lots of them. Those tend to be more sustainable than like tunas and swordfish and sharks and those things that like take a long time to reproduce they don't make a a ton of babies and they tend to be really heavily targeted by fishing so from the the big picture i'd say that but then again like if you're working uh if you're in a local community if you know your fishermen if you're part of community supported fishery like the vegetable boxes csa's community supported agriculture they're now doing that for local fisheries which is cool you can get like whatever the fishermen caught you can get a share of the catch This, by the way, is also a great excuse to just casually use the word fishmonger in conversation. Fishmongers. Fishmonger. Fishmonger. And there's also an app that's helpful, Mm -hmm. which is from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch program that you can download. So that's not, I wasn't sure if that was just hocus pocus and like, no, that's real. There are things that we can feel comfortable eating. But I think the question is also like, how many meals a a month or a day should we expect to be wild animals Mm -hmm. because we would never expect to be eating like lions and tigers and you know antelopes as our primary source of protein on land but that's Mm -hmm. what we're expecting from the ocean i mean tuna are so high up the food chain and swordfish and all these things and so i think we just need to change the mindset that we can live sustainably off of wild animals from the ocean that are at the top of the food chain yeah, I guess we see the word seafood buffet together too much. It's, <laughs> oh, you know what I mean? It really does yeah. give us a wrong, yeah. a wrong impression of what's out there. And I think that's part of the problem is that the price of seafood hasn't skyrocketed in tandem with the with overfishing. You'd mm-hmm. think that when something gets more rare, it gets more expensive. Yeah. But we haven't seen that as much with seafood because it's often really heavily subsidized by governments or helping to pay for fuel or boats or whatever to send more people out fishing. Mm-hmm. And so you can still get a can of tuna for like what, one or yeah, two bucks. Like and so if you if that's the case, why would you think that it's a problem. It's so cheap, there must be a lot of it. And so I think until the price of things reflects their value and their rarity, then it's going to be really hard to can, to have these conversations that sink in because because um, that price is such a strong signal. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine if a can of tuna was like $17? Yeah. I can't stop picturing Mariah Carey Instagramming herself eating tuna from a can with like a golden fork and other people seeing it just like 
man, I will never know that kind of life. So aspirational. So now I always ask these questions at the very end. What about your job sucks the mm-hmm. most? What is the worst Email. thing? Really? <laughs> I mean, but it's the same thing that sucks about many jobs. Yeah. I spend way too much time answering email. Yeah. Just an endless inbox. But it's, I mean, that's also the way that I'm able to have colleagues all over the world and avoid video chats, which I really hate. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. But so it's a blessing and a curse. And what do you love the most about your job or the ocean? I love jumping into the ocean and I love the look on people's faces when they understand something about it. And it's not like, I think the joy and happiness the ocean brings us is amazing. And I appreciate that too. But when like a teenager comes up to me and explains to me that parrotfish are important because they eat algae and poop sand (laughs) and they have this like intense look on their face, like I'm explaining to you how this ecosystem works and like we all need to be on board with this. Like that's what brings me the deepest joy is like the confidence and the engage, like the engagement in solutions that people have when they learn something about it. Um, So that's something that really inspires me. Right. It's great when you can see that shift from an ownership of the ocean, like it's ours to exploit versus mm-hmm. like uh, a responsibility to the ocean. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, absolutely. You know, like a familiarity yeah. and an, uh, an investment in it, you know? Yeah. But um, and now where can we find you and your company? Like, uh, give us give us some links so we can gently stalk. Yeah, I'm very easy to stop. I think if you put like Ayana and marine biologist and you'll find me. And that Ocean Collective is the name of the company. And there's no E at the end of collective because that is a heavy metal band in Australia. (laughs) And obviously we needed all the social handles to be consistent. So it's oceancollective.co is our website. And we're at Ocean Collective on Twitter and and Instagram. Cool. And then personally, and you can find me at Ayana Eliza on Twitter and Iona.Elizabeth on Instagram. I think uh, the online ocean community is actually a really cool aspect of the job as well because nerdy ocean jokes are amazing. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many puns to be made. So many puns. I actually have an Evernote file full of ocean puns. Do you really? This is a thing I have. (laughs) Do Do you have to highlight one and just pop it in the end of an email? No, I actually try to avoid them. I like I'm amused by the list of them and how many there are that you wouldn't know until you're writing an email about the ocean. And then you'd be like, all right, let's dive into this, people, and like figure it out. Like, don't be afraid to get your feet wet. Like, let's just like figure out how we're going to. And I'm just like, I don't know. You can't do that because it's confusing if you're actually talking about the ocean. Does anyone ever write back? I see what you did there. It's always not the best yet. Retort. Not yeah. yet. Well, I'm excited for your book to come out too. Thank you Thank so much you. for the work that you do. I'm sure the ocean would. Thanks for back. your great questions and all of your Patreon's questions. There are so many questions. I mean, I had to consolidate into categories. So <laughs> many people were like, "Woo!" Yeah. So thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Anytime. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, so we have come to the final credits of this sad romantic saga, but with a glimmer of hope for maybe a happier sequel. So find Dr. Anna Johnson all over the internet. Watch her amazing TED Talk, her public speaking, check out Ocean Collective, and just tell the world about the episode so we can stop losing sleep over the ocean and just start making better choices. Now go talk to your fishmonger. You can sign up for a beach or a river cleanup. You can donate five bucks to an ocean charity or start reading up on plastic use. You got this. You got, you're so well armed now. You got this. 
Now, to support the podcast, you can sign up to be a patron if you want at patreon.com slash ologies. Merch is available at ologiesmerch.com, and there's a grip of back-to-school stuff up as of today. So collegiate crested shirts and things to put you in kind of an autumn frame of mind. Thank you, Bonnie Dutch, for all your new designs, and Shannon Feltis for helping run the site and for putting on the sold-out Camp Ologies event in Portland in a few weeks in September. Uh, thank you, Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo, for being admins to the Facebook Ologies podcast group. And thank you, as always, to podcast monger Stephen Ray Morris for editing and helping produce this. The music was written and performed by Nick Thorburn, who also did Serial's podcast theme. He makes other great music uh, in the band Islands and in solo efforts. Now, if you stay to the end of the episode, you know that I tell you a secret. Thank you so much for all of your support in terms of last week's secret about how I'd never seen any of the Harry Potter movies. And... This, you know what, I'm going to give you another Harry Potter secret, because you guys seem to be passionate about it. I was really afraid of taking the test to find out what house I would be in, because I was like, what if I come up Slytherin? What if I find out I'm like, kind of lightly evil, just through a Harry Potter quiz? I took the quiz, and I guess it turns out I'm Gryffindor. I don't know what that means, but I think it's Okay. Okay, we're all in this thing together. Good job. Bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, When life gets you down, you know what you gotta do? I don't wanna know what you gotta do. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's gonna wanna buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated.